Hi everybody, welcome to another episode of the Feel Your Fandom Podcast. My name is Saint. And I'm Jim. And we're in Facebook jail! What the fuck is that? Like, here's the thing. We're, we finally decided we're going to just record a standard episode for all of you lovely people who are goodly enough to put us in your ear holes. Reason being, this was supposed to be a live episode today, but I got put in Facebook jail a week ago, and Saint got put in Facebook jail earlier today, so both of us are restricted... It was yesterday. Yesterday, yeah. Not just from posting and commenting, but also apparently from going live. The week before... We went ahead and and, uh, and and started promoting this episode as being a live episode, and now we can't do it that way because uh, of Zuckerberg's algorithmic cyber cops considering us both miscreants and criminals. It's true, and uh, literally, this is the dumbest friggin' reason to get in trouble. I got in trouble because uh, I was at, uh, me and my family, as we do every uh, fall, we go to the local uh, cider mill. And they have pumpkins and everything else, and we do all that, and we wait in line, and we usually get their wonderful little, uh, uh, they've got these fresh apple fritters that they make that are just amazing. And uh, they are a thing to write home about, they are a thing to stand in an hour-long line for, which is what we did. By yeah. the time we got into the building, they didn't have any, because they had a fryer go down, so they couldn't keep up with demand. And so, what happens is, is we tried to get these donuts, we waited in line for an hour, said screw it at that point went out and just did the other stuff and and left got the pumpkins and left and so i posted on facebook to that effect and and how disappointed i was uh i made a joke about it and then i had friends posting about you know this that or the other thing with it and uh, uh my friend patrick uh who was my editor for the uh, uh cooking and complicated videos that i used to do on youtube uh, hey Patrick, what's up, buddy? He's been on the podcast a few times in its earlier season as well, but uh, he posted, "Oh, I don't know, we didn't have a problem yesterday. I got a dozen just yesterday," and I'm like, very jokingly, very tongue in cheek, very sarcastically, I'm like, "Oh, you know what? I'll kill you. I kill you." <laughs> and then the hammer dropped. Which now let me go on record as saying, okay. If it's just the robot cops dictating what is and what isn't speech that could get you in trouble, yeah, I get it. What I said is inappropriate, and what I said can sound like a threat. Unfortunately, these robots that Zuck employs doesn't know how to, uh, they don't know how to distinguish sarcasm or, you know, fucking around or just anything like that. It just, they have a broad brush and they just paint everything with it and... Your boy got tossed in the jail clink for that. So Yeah, my shit was almost as stupid. I had a friend put up this dumb meme, and it was a little picture of uh, the Dracula character from the Adam Sandler Hotel Transylvania movies. And the caption was, start typing, I want to suck your dot dot dot, and then let mm-hmm. autocomplete on your phone finish the rest. So I did that, and I was like, oh, this will be fun. Just a, just a stupid on-the-toilet, tossed-off comment. And I said, I want to suck your, and then I tapped the middle word on the autocomplete on my phone and what my phone did, and i'm blaming my phone for this one i didn't say this my fucking phone did my phone autocompleted the phrase i want to suck your house and burn it down so now zuckerberg's algorithmic cyber cops think that i'm an arsonist so you're apparently a murderer and i'm an arsonist and that's just what facebook thinks we are 
Yeah. Oh yeah, we're the worst we can we can do we can do the podcast from uh, from our, our shared cell on uh, block six here in a couple of weeks. After you kill and somebody and I burn something down. Sure, why not? I mean, as uh, long as we're going to do the time, we might as well do the crime we're accused of. Yeah, isn't it that that thought crime thing from uh, what was the name? Minority of the Tom Report movie. Minority yeah. Report. Yeah. So yeah, this so is supposed to be a Facebook Live episode, and we were we, we, we apologize to anybody who was going to try and tune in and join us on Facebook Live, but uh, for the time being, you and I are both Facebook dead, so we couldn't actually do the the episode we'd planned to. We're still going to tackle the subject matter we were talking about, but sadly, right. we, we can't uh, we can't really have any uh, any anybody join us on Facebook Live. So thanks a lot, Mark Zuckerberg. You're a you're, you're you're a a, a wall eyed android. Uh, beta piece of shit. So that's how that goes. Right. I mean, you just know. You just know Tom from MySpace wouldn't have had this shit happen. Hells to the no. That guy actually was cool. Tom was chill. Tom was everybody's friend. Zuckerberg is nobody's friend. Nobody Nobody loves you, Mark Zuckerberg. Not even your wife. You know she's only with you for your money. Get fucked. Seriously. So, uh... We were going to talk about, uh, we have that segment that we talk about with uh, the Grinds My Gears segment and that we've stolen just wholeheartedly from Family Guys. So I think that kind of falls into the category of shit that grinds our gears. I mean, to I be sure, it grinds my gears, yeah. And then also, uh, the other thing we're going to talk about during the uh, What Pisses Us Off segment with our uh, first world, super privileged, straight white male rage um, is Dave Chappelle. Uh, oh, boy. Uh, Dave Chappelle, uh, his, his new special just landed on Netflix, I think, last week, Tuesday, as we record this. And it's called mm-hmm. The Closer. Uh, I have not watched it yet. I did watch his last few. But I'm starting... Here's the... All right. Dave Chappelle is unabashedly a comedy genius. Let's get that right, right out of the gate. The guy has earned and deserves every drop of recognition he's ever gotten for being today's Richard Pryor. Just he's you know or today's uh, George Carlin, he is unabashedly a comedy genius. The way that guy's mind works, the stuff he comes up with, is brilliant. And what I love about him is that he kind of sneaks in the social commentary on you when you're not paying attention. He'll he'll have a string of laugh out loud jokes that last ten minutes, and then he'll take a serious turn and drop some fucking wisdom and knowledge on you. However, However. it must be acknowledged that Dave Chappelle is transphobic, and not just like undercover, like, side-eye, sort of like making a sly comment here and there on social media transphobic, but openly, I'm going to make statements in my stand-up that are openly and unabashedly and unambiguously transphobic, and then I'm going to double down and say, yes, I said what I said. (sighs) But for reasons I can't quite understand, um, he seems to be getting away with it. The cancel culture slash sparkling consequences sort of thing that befalls people like Louis C.K. for, you know, uh, masturbating in front of female comedians. He's trapped inside of a room. Or somebody like, you know, obviously the She Who Shall Not Be Named, who uh, used to be on The Mandalorian and who uh, has made several anti- anti-Semitic statements. Um, he doesn't. He, he winds up escaping sort of like the court of public opinion condemnation. And I don't know what that's about maybe it's because I think he's... It, it might have something to do with the fact that uh, he's as a shock comedian as someone who says the things that people are afraid to say and everything he's just a lot of the same reasons that i think uh uh 45 got away with a lot of the shit that he got away with saying is because a lot of the public out there 
is willing to be like, oh, that's just locker room talk, or he's just saying what he feels, and he's just speaking his mind. and Grab him by the pussy. Which is a very poisonous attitude to kind of take, because what it he's is. saying has the potential to do such great harm and represents such great harm to people in the trans community, and that's unacceptable no matter how you slice it. Yeah, and what really also bugs me about it, too, is that, you know, I every time that I see one member of a community that eats a lot of shit, socially that they don't need to eat pick on another group that eats a lot of shit socially they don't need to eat i mean obviously um black americans have have had to deal with with tons of shit in this country uh racism is a very real thing it's terrible um and i'm not necessarily saying that that means that anybody who belongs to a marginalized group needs to necessarily sympathize and identify with people who belong to other marginalized groups but they should know how it feels and the fact that he actually came out he has apparently and some of the stories i write about this I guess there's a friend of a sister or a sister of a friend or something who is trans who has very loudly defended his points of view and, and, and defended his right to speak his mind on this stuff. And while that's fine, it certainly uh, edges towards that sort of tokenism uh, argument where, oh, yeah, I can say this like, kind of stuff. I have a trans yeah, friend. I can't, I can't be a racist. I have a black friend. You know. Yeah, and of all people, somebody who uh, is, has, has come up in the entertainment industry as a black man facing all of the same bullshit that so many black Americans have to face, making that tokenism argument of, oh, I can't possibly be transphobic, I have a trans friend, you know, and again, of all people, somebody who's had to eat shit on his own end of the world for, for just being alive and looking the way he does and having been born as an African American man, should not make that argument. I, I don't think it's a valid argument when people say I have a black friend, and I really don't think it's a valid argument when Dave Chappelle says I have a trans friend. I got my trans pass to be transphobic because I have a trans friend who says it's okay. That shit doesn't hold water when it goes the other way. So I don't know no, why no he's able to get away with it. I, I really don't. I haven't seen the special, and based on the reaction to it, I probably won't. I watched the last few, and there was some questionable shit in it, and I just sort of winched through those portions of it, and just, well, you know, the guy's a comedy genius. I don't give him a pass on what he said, but I guess, you know, like you said, part of the reason why he does get away with it is because he is a shock comedian. And it's sort of part and parcel with his persona that he says shit that make people go, whoa! But there is this and sort of punching... I think it punching... kind of falls back, into, it falls back into the same thing we talked about last week with separating art uh, yeah. from the artist. Separating right. this problematic... And what do we give a pass and what do we not give a pass to? What do we, what do, how do we differentiate between the art that we're allowed to keep and enjoying and the art that we can enjoy? The things, and, and I think what you were just getting ready to say, and I apologize for interrupting you, but now oh, I no, no. mention that as well, is when you talk about whether or not they're punching down. Yes. And, and this is very obviously Dave Chappelle punching down. Uh, which, as yeah, someone who's a member of a minority group, or who's a member of some of a group that does get maligned a lot, it does seem short-sighted. It seems like something that maybe he should have thought twice about. But uh, I think that, uh, uh, like you said, is just... I don't know. I, I think it's just because of the shock value of his comedy, and he thinks he can get away with it, and, and the public's just willing to except that he's being shocky for shock value. I don't know. Yeah. And I sort of contrast this with another uh, special that was very celebrated and for good reasons that came out on Netflix not long ago. Um, everybody at this point has probably watched Bo Burnham's Inside. And Bo Burnham has been on this upward trajectory of, of undeniable genius ever since his initial special, Words, Words, Words. Um, he was a, kind of a child prodigy. He started making YouTube I videos when he was Burnham. a kid. Yeah, and then yeah, he just funny. kept on getting smarter and getting funnier and taking bigger risks with his comedy. And I watched Bo Burnham's last special, Make Happy, from I think 2017, and it was just liquid fucking genius. The guy... 
is amazing. He's blending this sort of like meta performance art thing with comedy, with music, with this sort of like hyper social aware performative criticism and it's just brilliant i thought how, how in the hell is he going to top that and then he did inside which is only a special that could have come out um it's one of the best things to come out of the pandemic but in that special he picks on himself a lot for his fragile mental and emotional instability um he right. sort of also picks on jeff bezos he's got a couple of songs about jeff bezos about how he's a billionaire and how we shouldn't have billionaires and how that's disgusting in society and he picks on like white women on Instagram, which again is even though he's a dude and it, it could come off as mildly misogynist, he's still punching up because these women are desperately privileged. So Bo Burnham had a special where he sort of like attacked targets that were above him and attacked himself, and the whole thing came off as being this giant self-deprecating, um, incredibly vulnerable work of absolute undeniable genius. And then you got Dave Chappelle coming out here with his undeniable swagger and his equal amounts of genius, even though it's a hard thing to quantify and compare. But he comes out and he starts dropping, for the third or fourth special in a row, you know, um, some very questionable humor. And because he's been getting away with it the last couple specials, this time he really took off the gloves and went for it. Again, I haven't seen the special, but based on what I've read about it, it really seems like even people that were willing to give him a pass on some of the shit he said before, I kind of look at this one and go, all right, you, you definitely crossed the line this time, Dave. You really said some shit you shouldn't have said. And people at Netflix, I just read, are getting fired over it because somebody who was a sympathizer uh, with the LGBTQ community leaked uh, not long ago what Netflix paid for that special. It was somewhere in the neighborhood of $24 million and, and change. And so because uh, that was unacceptable, um, somebody had apparently signed an NDA that they violated. They find out who it was, and they cut that person. So now Netflix is in a position where it looks like they're uh, siding with a transphobe and, and kind of canning whistleblowers, even though it, it was they, they, the, the thing they chose to whistleblow on is, hey, here's how much Netflix paid for that problematic transphobic special from Dave Chappelle. It had nothing to do with the actual content of it. It was sort of a, a, a tertiary uh, uh, factor that had, you know, that they, they, they let loose into the press. But still, that person got fired. So the whole thing just winds up being this this giant problematic ball of fucking wax that, you know, people really... It's just a mess. It's an absolute mess, and I hate to see this kind of shit happen. Absolutely. So, like I said, it falls under that kind of category of what we're talking about, what you choose to spend your time and your money on. Yeah. I know if you have a Netflix account, it's already free. It's already paid for. What the hell? But it's really, at that point, an expenditure of time, and, I, and it's something yep. that I don't choose to expend my time doing. Uh, I've got other shit I can watch that's about more... A lot more in my league, so... I'd rather finish watching um, Squid Game, which is not a, a topic for another day. I haven't watched that yet. I need to pick that up. That's yeah. on my list. Well, much like folks of the book club, you and I are going to have to both pledge to watch that because it is the hot new fucking thing, and apparently for good reasons. So uh, I'm going to try and catch up on that this week, and yeah, whenever you get around to it too, we'll have to talk about it. Like I know that you know I, I am usually much more behind on catching up on my pop culture shit than you are. I can't even I've lost count of the number of episodes we've done where you talk about something that's that's very. Uh, uh, hot and prominent in the geekosphere, and I'm like, yeah, I'm going to catch up on that, whether it's Cobra Kai or Masters of the Universe or whatever else it is. I'm so far behind on my queue, I'll never catch up. But uh, Squid Game is, is kind of an undeniable cultural force right now, so we're going to have to jump on that and check it out and, and see if we can't kick it around a little bit. Agreed. And Masters of the Universe is only like a two-hour time investiture. I say get back onto that. The new season starts, or the new second half of the season starts on the 23rd of November, so I'm looking forward to that. I think that's the they promise I made to myself, is I was just going to wait till it all dropped and then watch it in a sprint. And that's, I think, what I'll still do. I'll, I'll check it out in November, and then we can we can sort of break down the whole thing at that point. Sure. 
I did have one more thing I wanted to add on the whole grinds my gears thing, and it's actually a positive one. And I want to give right credit then. to something that actually is very positive. It's kind of tongue-in-cheek, so bear with me, but I find ways to bitch about every little thing that bothers me, and that's what this segment really is all about. But in this particular regard, uh, something along those same lines, but is actually very helpful, is you find those list articles on Facebook or wherever you're finding these list articles, and you click... Like you get like three quarters of the story and then, oh, what happens next will surprise you. And you get <laughs> clickbaited into jumping into the article. And of course, that story may or may not appear. It may be like 60 pages down. It, it, you could, it could take you forever to get to the end of what this story was that lured you in in the first place, you know? Yeah. So there are these group of people that not every time, but there's a definite trend towards that. If you see a comment on the list article, click on the comment first before you go into the article. Because there's a good chance these people who go into the co into the whole article, who waste their time going through it, find a resolution to the cover story and post it in the comments. That way, if all you want to do is follow up on the edge of the cover story and figure out what happened... It's right there. You don't have to click into the article. You don't have to give them your time. You don't have to give the algorithm another thing to ping you for. You just kind of get the resolution you're looking for. And so those people are, are, are modern-day Robin Hood on the Internet. And I salute you. That doesn't grind my gears. That, uh, that makes me happy. Not all heroes wear capes. That's right. And uh, so for y'all who go in there and post that, I've done it a few times, I know. Not as much as I should. Uh, because usually by the time I get to the uh, resolution of the cover story, I'm a little bit annoyed and I just want to be done with it. But uh, uh, you guys are heroes of the internet modern age, and we salute you. So That we do. Okay. Jim, how you doing? Other than your stint in Facebook jail, how's things been going for you, brother? You know, pretty good. Um, I uh, am about three or four, maybe outside of five months into rehearsals with this band that I've been singing with. And um, I just took uh, some guitars that I had to the shop uh, to get them set up. I play guitar not well. I, I chunk along pretty all right on, on big, fat, chimey chords. Uh, I'm just a rhythm guitarist at best, if that, because I'm primarily a drummer. But because my snare drum hand keeps time pretty well, I can actually you know fake rhythm guitar to the point where I'm, I'm marginally passable on it. But because I am a lefty... Um, I don't play drums left-handed because my, my instructor when I was nine was not left-handed, so I didn't realize until after I'd built the muscle memory playing right-handed that I was a left-handed way to play drums, but I do play guitar left-handed, sort of. Um, when I was a kid, I was always the drummer, so I was the least portable. So any of the stupid garage bands I was in in high school or middle school, all my friends would come over and they'd bring their guitars and they'd kind of leave them there sometimes to uh, <laughs> between rehearsals. So I picked them up and started playing with them, and all my friends are right-handed. So I learned how to play guitar on a right-handed guitar. Um, an acoustic, which, you know, usually those are pretty symmetrical and it's not really that big of a deal. The pick guard might be in the wrong spot, but whatever. So when I started buying electric guitars, um, I had to buy a left-handed body so that the pick guards and the controls and the, uh, the strap, uh, locks were in the right place for me to be able to play it with the neck pointing in the correct direction. But I had to have the strings set up to be able to play left. Um, or to play to play right. Uh, the strings had to be in a right-handed string arrangement or else the muscle memory wouldn't work and I couldn't play the chords. So there's a uh, 
a guy that's a town over for me, and I doubt he's listening, but I'll have to give him a shout out anyway. Uh, Lucas Janicki, <laughs> and he works at LSJ Music, um, not far from me in Delavan, Wisconsin. And he runs a small business. He's a young guy, and he's uh, he, he he runs a guitar sales and repair and luthier shop, and he's just phenomenal. So I take my guitars over to him uh, to get him set up, and he didn't bat an eyelash. He uh, cut a new nut, adjusted the bridge, strung these left-handed guitars for right-handed strings so I can play them, and now i got a couple of options for electrics. i got a Tele knockoff and a Les Paul knockoff, because I'm not paying you know $2,000 for a left-handed brand-name instrument, and they work just fine. So um, going forward with this band, I'm going to be uh, hopefully not just singing, but also throwing down some rhythm guitar. Not that it's needed. We actually have two very good and very competent guitarists who are way better than me. They don't need the help, but... It's kind of a security blanket thing for me. Like, first of all, I still have body image issues, so anything I can stick over my midsection is going to be helpful from standing in front of people. <laughs> but the other thing is, like, I would go and see bands sometimes, and I'll look at, like, a guy who's singing, and if he's just singing, I'm like, oh, you better be the second coming of fucking Freddie Mercury if you think you're good enough to just stand up there and sing, and that's all you're bringing to the table. Put a tambourine in this guy's hands. Put a fucking you know, acoustic guitar. Let him just chime on big Honestly, Midwestern goofy chords. You're hitting on me right now because I'm just a, a singer. That's all I do. I don't even have. Well, a see, the tambourine. thing is, you're a good one though. That you know, people looking at you and you're up there, you know, tearing your throat into hamburger, making sure that you get the emotion out. It's a different thing when it's somebody who's. But you know, if somebody is, uh, they they really got to be good. So you you definitely are. But me, I have doubts oh. about myself. No, see, I do. I, I, we're, we're all our own worst critics. The guys I'm singing with seem to think I'm doing pretty well. I listen back to the rehearsal recordings, and all I can hear are areas of opportunity, watching the game film, watching for your fuck-ups. <laughs> um, but opportunity, uh, Jesus. Yeah, well, you know, if, oh, oh, super flat there. Like, if, even if the rest of the song went great, I'm going to pick on my one bum note, uh, and that's just kind of how I roll. But, um... You know, yeah, so it's a security blanket thing for me because I, I just got to make sure that I'm, 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 if I can't sing perfectly, if I can't nail the songs to the point where I'm happy with hearing them, then I feel like I'm really not doing my job. So I'm going to play some guitar or two so that hopefully I can distract from, uh, from maybe some of the bum notes I know I'm going to crank out until I get to the point where the vocals are on point. Well, I mean, I'm not going to, I've tried picking up a guitar. I'm shit with it. I've, I've tried playing that like Rocksmith band game and, uh, hoping that that would teach me because I'm a video game nut and figure if I could cross-pollinate my loves, maybe it would work. But I just haven't had enough time to dedicate towards it. And I just, I got so much shit on my plate that I can't commit to that at this point either. So Honestly. I wish you luck, sir. Well, I appreciate that. I mean, you know, I, I've got a, a full-time day job, plus I have a freelance gig, plus I take voice lessons, and, uh, you know, I have a regular dietitian check-in every week, and, and then I have two bands that I'm in right now, playing drums in one and singing and playing rhythm guitar on the other. So I, if anybody can relate to... Oh, I, I also... I, do I do a podcast? I think I do a podcast. So, you know... Sometimes. Um, having... Yeah, once in a while if I don't sleep in too late. Um <laughs> you know, so having a uh, having a pretty full schedule is something to which I can totally relate. So I, I really get it, um, having having to, to squeeze in time. Plus, you know, I've also been playing uh, Far Cry Six a lot on the PS Five, which is um, you know that's also eaten up some of my free time. I haven't you picked know. that up. Is that good? I keep on hearing from a lot of people, and I've read this article a lot lately, especially as it pertains to Far Cry 6, that people are, because it's about, Far Cry 6, if you don't know, it's it's the latest edition of the Far Cry series, obviously, and I've played most of, going back to like Far Cry 2, I've played, I didn't play the first one, but I've played them all since Far Cry 2, and they all follow the same basic, what's come to be termed the Ubisoft sandbox formula, where you have a giant map, and it's uh, sort of scattered with icons and things to do, and it does kind of get repetitive, and it is kind of formulaic, but there's a reason why those games sell. I mean, it's a, it's a formula that works. A lot of the critics are like, well, because this particular game is set in a, a sort of um, uh, 
uh, uh, fictionalized version of Cuba, and it's about a revolution against a Castro-like figure played wonderfully by Giancarlo Esposito, who's a fantastic actor. Um, I love that guy. Yeah, he's great. He's uh, Gus Fring from Breaking Bad, and he's done a ton of other things. One of the best actors we have. And he's just, you know, chewing scenery tour de force in this game. Um, but a lot of the articles I've read said, you know, Far Cry series needs its own revolution because this game is just the same as all the other ones they've done. It's formulaic, it's repetitive, it's not bringing anything new to the table. And I don't know, I mean, that's a valid criticism, I suppose, but when it comes to that, what they've termed the Ubisoft sandbox formula, whether it's Ghost Recon or Far Cry or Assassin's Creed, it, it's one that works for me. I mean, I like what they do. Um, yeah, I know the company it, itself it. is kind of problematic because they've had some some accusations of toxic work culture and, and misogyny and sexual harassment, and I definitely shouldn't support that. But, you know, I also don't want to punish 98% of the other creators in a... In a, in a studio for maybe the one or two bad apples, which again I know is also a problematic sort of point of view because the same sort of idea of yeah if you have a hundred cops and one of them is bad and the other ninety nine don't say anything you got a hundred bad cops I understand that I really do but it, this is just one of those things you got to pick your battles now if you're trying to be somebody who's who's a woke citizen of the universe who doesn't want to support poor behavior and um, while I full well allow that because I enjoy video games is a shitty uh, justification slash rationalization for why I don't boycott a company like Ubisoft. You know, it's just not a battle I choose, and I I can't really defend it. I know it's an issue, but it's you know, that's just one of those things I kind of have to suck up. But the game itself is very good. It's it's what you've come to expect from Far Cry. Um, there's a whole map full of icons. There's a bunch of side missions. There's characters you meet. There's weapons you pick up. You can build things. It, if you've played a Far Cry game before, you're getting more of the same in a different setting with different characters, and it's up to you to decide whether that's actually worth your time and money or not. For me, it is. Uh, it's not for everybody, but that's totally fine. That's the way it should be. It's on my list to pick up. Now, I've been spending a lot of time this last uh, week and a half or so with uh, the new Metroid Dread game, and uh, oh. anyone who knows me knows my love of Nintendo and the old yeah. Metroidvanias themselves, where they got their name from, was Metroid, this side-scrolling adventure game where it's a ton of backtracking and it's it's kind of like the same thing with far cry it's like there's a lot of icons that you have to get to some you can get to right away some you have to wait for power-ups sometimes i mean it's very very frustrating uh it's aggressively hard um what they used to call nintendo hard right i like that about that game it's it's a puzzler that is action at the same time and you know, I spent a lot of time playing that. I played a bunch of it this morning, got pretty far with that this morning. And uh, actually, I've got my daughter kind of cheerleading me on on the sidelines, too. So, hey, looks like we have our first guest today. All right. I'm going to bring him in here. We got Frankie on here. Welcome, Frankie. What's going on? Yeah, well, it's, it's um, worth uh, pointing out at this point, speaking of the Metroid series, that friend of the show and previous guest Aaron De Arrive, uh worked on Metroid Prime Corruption in 2007, so the, the Metroid series uh, continues to be in good hands, and um, you know, I, I, I should really pick that up. I, I have a Switch. It's probably my least played console, uh, because I like Nintendo's first-party stuff. I really dug Breath of the Wild. I really dug Mario Odyssey. But, um, you know, every time I go into the shop to look at stuff to play on the Switch, it's just a whole bunch of side-scrolling pixel art shovelware that I'm just that interested in. But uh, the Metroid series has been a favorite of mine for a while, too, so that's one I'll definitely have to pick up when it, uh, when, when I get around to it. Of course, I have to finish Psychonauts 2 first, which is... I've been a big fan of Double Fine for a long time, too, and then Far Cry's going to take me a while, so I'll get to it eventually, but it'll be one of those just things like that's on my list for a minute. Just like with all your pop culture, yeah, you'll get there eventually. 
Yeah, I'm going to die with a stack of books and a stack of movies and a, a, a full queue of shit, you know. Hopefully not anytime soon, but, um, you know, I, I will never... Though, right? I, yeah, I fully allow that I will never catch up on my pop culture queue, and that's fine. Well, I mean, like I said, that's what I've been doing. That's what I've been up to. Uh, uh, as far as everything else goes, my band's album is now complete. The album yes. is now called Ascending the Abyss by another sentiment and that should be released within uh the next month or so i believe our first single is dropping on uh november 2nd that single is going to be called uh watch it burn and then uh a couple weeks following that we'll have another single rise up uh which will then be preceded by our full album drop at the end of the month so we're pretty excited about that uh, we worked our asses off getting that thing prepared and getting that thing ready to go. So now, uh, as of last week, we've already started writing new material and trying to get uh, the fresh new stuff ready to go. And uh, uh, it, it's a process. It's an adventure. Yeah. And uh, it's one that every musician, I'm sure, enjoys. Maybe. I don't know. Fuck. I could be atypical. I have no idea. No, I always uh, had a good time, um, you know, recording. So uh, I, I'm super glad that's coming out. I, uh, I'm i definitely a fan of Another Sentiment. I like what you guys do. Um, you know, I'm not usually into uh, to heavy stuff, but uh, if, everybody, if every band did it as well as you guys do, now I'm from New Jersey, if every, band did it as, if every band did that shit as well as you guys do, I'd listen to a lot more of that shit. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I would listen to more of it. So I'm looking forward to hearing what you guys come up with, too. Well, I appreciate that. Like I said, first single, Watch It Burn, drops on Spotify and other places on November 2nd. And I'm sure uh, we will talk a bit more about that as the time draws closer. Now, before we ran into all of this problem being Facebook uh, jailbirds, uh, we had initially hoped to do a Facebook Live event talking about um, horror movie icons and, and who yeah. uh, is the, the number one horror movie icon because we were, we're going through such a, a renaissance right now of horror as a genre in, in general but in particular, they're doing a lot of uh, remakes and retreads and continuations of these horror movie franchises that have been around yeah. for uh, decades, you know, as of now. Um, uh, a, a particular uh, fresh one now is Halloween, and the new Halloween yes. Kills just came out. Brought back Jamie um, Lee Curtis have, for that, yeah, one of the original screen queens. I have queens. not watched it yet, yeah. But uh, horror is not necessarily a genre that I, I am super... Uh, huge into, but I know it's got this big place in, in pop culture as a whole, and uh, it being the beginning of Spoopy Scary Season, uh, as my wife likes to call it, uh, it's, it's a good time to discuss uh, what everybody's favorite uh, horror movie icons are. Yeah, they're um, making they a lot of horror movies lately because, uh, well, for various reasons that we could probably kick around in another episode, um, 
Hollywood, well, whether it's streaming, whether it's the pandemic, whether it's anything, Hollywood's had some issues lately with, uh, with, with having a lot of flops. And, like, the movies that I tried to write back when I was trying to be a screenwriter were sort of the middle-tier, maybe $150 million comedy movies, like Identity Thief or, like, Horrible Bosses, or like The Hangover. Not, like, giant superhero blockbusters and not, like, micro-budget indies. But in the age of streaming and COVID... The only movies you can guarantee are going to actually make the money back that it costs to make them seem to be the big blockbuster superhero Marvel and DC kind of movies or um, really low-budget horror movies. And those were kind of, for a while, the only movies that were getting made. So if you were going to the Cineplex any point in the last maybe two, three years, or going back even like five, six years, ever since you know Netflix really started to pick up steam with their original programming and suck a lot of people out of the Cineplex... um, you would see you're either going to see the latest Marvel movie or you're going to see a quiet place or you're going to see paranormal activity. So horror movies are enjoying something of a renaissance due to largely sort of like practicality reasons when it comes to the studios. Horror movies are cheap to make. Um, You know, if you have creatures in the movies, uh, a lot of the time um, they only make sporadic appearances because everybody kind of follows that Blair Witch thing right now where you don't really see the monster. And like in right. a quiet place, you know, they're they're kind of like flashing by in the background, or, or like Bird Box, even on Netflix. You, you know, it, it takes a while for the monster to reveal itself. Um, I guess that's you know, it's also not just a Blair Witch thing. It's also kind of an M Night Shyamalan thing, where you know, the 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 monsters don't really show up until really the final couple of reels. So you can build dread that way. You can really sort of have a lot a, a psychological thing happening where you you just kind of the hair stands up on the back of your neck. Um, there's Obviously, gore porn is a thing, and it has been for a while, but there's a couple of different schools of horror. There's, like, these sort of, like, Texas Chainsaw Massacre or old-school Friday the 13th movies where people are just getting carved up by the bucket load, or you've got these sort of, again, like the Blair Witch, M. Night Shyamalan sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. It's the difference between, like, somebody chasing you through a house with a chainsaw and you reaching for a light switch in the dark and a cold hand moving over your hand and moving it towards the switch. It, it, there's there's a difference <laughs> in, in the, the, the jump scare versus the sort of, like, that creeping dread that happens in a lot of movies now and creeping dread is not only very effective and it sells but it's also kind of cheap to produce so hollywood's doing a lot of that lately yeah especially with the advent of uh uh, jason bloom and bloom house as yeah a production company and as a production going concern gotta loop them in with the blair witch and and the m night Shyamalan thing yeah those those guys are, are definitely doing it Absolutely, and and I heard uh, Chris Harbrook talk about it on the ID10T podcast. Uh, he was interviewing Jason Bloom, and they were talking about why uh, this particular type of uh, horror is so easy to produce and so uh, uh, prevalent in pop culture at this point. And what they were talking about is the fact that uh, these kind of movies, like you said, they're cheap to make. You could throw fifty thousand, a hundred thousand dollars at a director, at a fledgling director, to produce this movie, and either it hits or it doesn't. If yeah. you have Ten of them that don't hit, that's what, a million dollars? You get mm-hmm. one that does hit, you make your nut back. Yes. And that's kind of the that's kind of like the the risk investment version of movie making, and that's kind of where this comes into. And as opposed to with uh, your monster movies, your creature movies like oh, I don't know, your your Fred at the thirteenth, your Nightmare on Elm Street, yep. uh, Hellraiser, Chucky, all of those movies. Uh, have your central core uh, villain, if you will, your central evil, your central conceit. Yep. Um, those are a little bit more uh, cost prohibitive to make just because you have to. Uh, if you're going to have a Chucky movie, you need to see Chucky. If you're going to have a Friday the 13th movie, you need to see, you know, 
your monster. You need to have that person be front and center. If you're going to make a Halloween movie, Michael Myers got to be front and center. You know, you got to see Jason. You got to see Freddy. That's what makes these movies. That's what sells these movies. And so you don't have with the psychological horror. It's like you said, it's a cold hand in the dark. It's yep. uh, shaky cam. It's it's uh, suspenseful music leading up to a dripping pipe in a, you know, whatever it is, you know, that's really, I don't want to say easy to do because I don't know if I could do it. I might, might be able to have never tested myself, but uh, the fact is that that is one of those things that's a bit uh, more open to the uh, artist's imagination, to the director's imagination. Mm-hmm. Whereas you have so. something like uh, uh, House of a Thousand Corpses, you've got the central conceit of the Firefly flam- family and what they do to these people. And so... Yeah, and, if, it, it, and that also, the title of that movie alone ties into the sort of Chekhov's gun idea, where if you have... You know, uh, it's a, a very well-known storytelling trope where if you have a gun on the wall in the first act, it better have gone off by the second. If you're going to call your house, your movie House of a Thousand Corpses, people are going to expect be a whole lot of corpses. corpses. You yeah. better, you know, nobody's going to be like actually making hash marks on a piece of paper in the movie theater. Oh, we only got 865 I only, corpses. I, I, yeah, I, I didn't see it. Somebody still owes me about 100, you know, they're not going to do that. <laughs> but at the same time, I mean, you, you still, you're setting up an idea and you sort of have to deliver on that idea. And again, like, you know, even if you have like a Chucky or a a Pinhead or a, a, a Freddy Krueger, they do have to kind of show up a lot, and you have to keep the stakes high. You have to sort of like, you know, especially if they're a popular character, you can't really kill them off, but you can kill off some of the other people in the movie, and you almost have to if it's a horror movie. But yeah, as opposed to like having a central character that people are fixated on, um, if you've got more of like a creeping dread, or if it's like a quiet place where you've got like this this sort of like race of like alien monster creature, whatever the things are that that uh, are blind and hunt by sound, it definitely right. sets up a, a conceit that is, if not easy, at least you, you you've established the rules of your universe, and then you can sort of work consistently to figure out what that means to your characters. But yeah, um, so I think when I think of of like Jason Voorhees or Freddy Krueger or Pinhead or Leatherface. I sort of think of, a, of an era of horror that's like 70s, 80s. Late 70s right. through the 80s. And that was the sort of model for horror then. Um, you have a, a central antagonist and a, probably a bunch of teenagers. And, you know, you, you have to sort of like kill them off. And, and, and you establish the rules. And, and, you know, Michael Myers also to an extent. You've got a central character who is a murderer. And that's who they need to avoid. Um, but then I think, like you said, with, with Bloomhouse, with, uh, with M. Night Shyamalan, with all these sort of like different, these, the movies that, that now, I, th- I don't want to call them more sophisticated because it really isn't that. It isn't that, it's, that it's, it's a level up from what they used to do with like, oh, run away from the guy with the chainsaw. Um, it's not that at all. But what it is, it's, it's just, it's a, it's a shift, I think. And I don't know if that has anything to do with the fact that sort of society has shifted a little bit um, f- away from... You know, we have one person to be to be scared of versus we've got this sort of like creeping dread that's really hard to pin down. But I think maybe that ties into it a little bit. But you know, again, we're, we're what what forty minutes into this podcast and we still have to sort <laughs> of like we wanted to not set up like a bracket necessarily, but we wanted to sort of count down if we could. Or like like um, the pros and cons of each one and and, and who yeah. uh, uh, can I guess hang in the modern era because. Like I said, we've had a lot of modern interpretations of some of the more recent ones. We haven't had yeah. much of a Freddy or a Jason. Uh, they did do a reboot of uh, Freddy Krueger uh, within the last decade. I want to say that did not go uh, well. Uh, who was what was the name of the guy who played Freddy in that one? It was the I guy don't who even know. Rorschach. That's oh, was the it? Um, Jackie Earl Haley. Uh, 
Jackie Earl Haley, that's right. Yeah. And he played uh, the new Freddy Krueger, and they made him much more child predatory and, and tried to ground it in reality, as if something like that could be grounded in any kind of reality. Yeah. But uh, uh, what I'm thinking more of is the characters that have been able to stand the test of time, that have been able to stick around a lot longer. Like, we haven't had a whole lot of Leatherface. We haven't had a whole lot of Jason Voorhees lately. Uh, Freddy, what we've had has not necessarily been uh, the same. But we've got things like uh, Child's Play still going on. Chucky's a still yeah. very, uh, very going concern. They even did a reboot of Child's Play with uh, this new weird animatronic uh, doll uh, that was supposed to be like computer virused into having a serial. I, I don't know. I didn't watch it. No, I didn't. Uh, but because I'm, I'm much more of a fan of the original Chucky, the the soul of uh, of uh, Charles Earl Ray being posted into this doll and this murderous doll going on a rampage for whatever the fucking reason, you know? And, and and he's managed to overcome being rebooted. Uh, the, the original Chucky is still very much a going thing. He's yeah. got a show right now on sci-fi that uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to picking up. Uh, so as far as horror movie icons, I'd say he's, he's still right there up there with uh, current modern times. Uh, of course, Michael Myers is still very much prevalent in the pop culture. Now I've had a bunch of people who've seen, uh, the new Halloween Kills. I have not yet. Uh, I haven't And it's either. gotten some very mixed reviews, uh, from what I understand. But uh, the fact that they're still going, the fact that they brought back Laurie Strode and they brought back Jamie yeah. Lee Curtis to play her, uh, sp- speaks volumes to that character's staying power as well. For sure. Um, we got characters like, again, the Firefly family from uh, – uh, House of a Thousand Corpses, uh, Devil's Rejects, and now Three from Hell. I've still not been able to see Three from Hell yet. Uh, it is definitely on my list. I love pretty much everything Rob Zombie does, speaking of Halloween. Yeah. Um, so uh, I'm looking forward to checking that out. Now we have a new guest uh, in the in the chat here. Hi, Jennifer. Can you hear us? She's muted, so I don't know if she can hear us. She, she told me she's in a place that's kind of loud, so she'll leave her microphone off. But, oh, okay. Uh, Nice to see you. It's nice to see you. Nice to have you participating. Uh, feel free to type in the chat if you want. Let us know who your favorite horror movie icon is. That way we could throw them in the mix. But uh, uh, like I said, the Firefly family is still very much a going concern. Uh, Rob Zombie's still making moves uh, up into a couple years ago when he put Three from Hell out. Uh, now he's working on the comedy aspect of things. He's doing uh, a remake of... The Monsters, which I've been following them on Facebook and watching as they've rebuilt Mockingbird Lane from the ground up, and it's absolutely fascinating. I love to watch. I really hope they so. don't mess that up. But I, I think I remember I posted on uh, on Facebook when I could still post on Facebook. Fuck you once again, Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> um, maybe when I think I I heard that Rob Zombie was doing a reboot of The Monsters, and I said, okay, look, there's one right way to do this. And you have to do it the right way. And step one is casting Brad Garrett as Herman Munster. Oh my God, Brad Garrett would be perfect. Hello, Lily. <laughs> I mean, he's done Herman Munster for years in his stand-up act. He actually, when he was playing uh, Ray Romano's brother, and everyone hates Raymond, everyone loves Raymond, everyone hates Chris, everybody, whatever the Raymond, I didn't watch it. But um, he did the for sort of Fred Gwynn, Herman Munster character, a couple of times on that show. He's a very gifted impressionist. Plus, he's really tall and broad-shouldered. I think he's like six foot nine. So you put him in a pair of platform boots, like Herman Munster had, with some sticks and bolts in his neck, he'd be perfect. So I, I haven't read any casting news. Um, 
But I don't think they've released any casting news for it yet. He, if he doesn't cast Brad Garrett as Herman Munster, he's already lost the, the reboot game on that one. I mean, you're I not going to get too much kinda, more you, perfect. I think Brad Garrett would be great if you're trying to emulate uh, Fred Gwynn. But yeah. I think if you try too hard to emulate Fred Gwynn, you're going to go into parody instead of uh, uh, doing a reboot or doing your own thing. I sort and of have kind a of an issue. fine when, line when, to walk. Yeah, when there is a when there's an actor who is perfect for a given role, just literally perfect, and they don't cast that actor, it tends to turn me off the whole film. We've talked about this before in terms of uh, of Star Wars when they did the solo movie with Alden Ehrenreich, um, a guy named Anthony Ingruber who played a young Harrison Ford in Age of Adeline with Blake Lively, um, looks like Harrison Ford. He sounds like Harrison Ford. He's already played a young Harrison Ford, and apparently he auditioned for the role of young Han Solo, and they didn't cast him, which was a mistake. Um, and they, uh, they sort of did the same thing, um, with, uh, oh gosh, what's the other one I was thinking of? Well, there's a, uh, well, yeah, I guess Brad Garrett, if they don't cast Brad Garrett as Herman Munster, I, I can see how, yeah, it would maybe descend into parody, but you've got an actor who's tailor-made to play this role. And this is also kind of off topic again, but I don't know if anybody has seen this. It was kind of all over the internet, maybe a couple of days ago, but, um, I saw it, I, th- I think I saw it on Facebook cause I still was scrolling Facebook, even if I couldn't post or comment. Thanks again, Mark Zuckerberg. But there was a piece of what they're calling test footage um, for a proposed Robin Williams biopic. And there's a young actor, oh, impressionist, yeah, named Jamie Costa. And he did like a five-minute reel with an actor, uh, actress playing uh, Pam Dauber on the set of Mork and Mindy in 1982, the day that after, the day after John Belushi overdosed at the uh, Chateau Marmont. And uh, Robin Williams was apparently with him the night before. And, of course, Robin Williams back in the 80s when he was on Mork and Mindy was very heavily coked up. Um, so it's a very touching scene. And what makes it so is that this this Jamie Costa becomes Robin Williams in a way that I, oh. I you know, you, you really haven't it seen. Beautiful. I mean, on the same level as like a Jamie Foxx doing um, Ray Charles or as a Rami Malek doing Freddie Mercury, he becomes this character. In a, and it's even, maybe I would even argue better than those two. Um you have to well, see because, it. Well, and it's like we were talking about. He does the mannerisms. He's got the the facial yeah. features, the He's voice. The, he looks just the, like the him. Intonation. It's beautiful. But it's, yeah, uh, the really one is. thing that I read about that that really kind of got me, and, and, and in a different kind of way, was that. Uh, and I know we've deviated from the topic. Anyone who listens to our podcast knows that we do deviate from time to time. We should really just call this like uh, Saint Jim and the Tangents. <laughs> but. Uh, People have been sending this performance, links of this performance, to uh, Zelda Williams to get her take on it, to get her opinion of it. Hey, have you seen this? Hey, have you seen this? And she had to go on Twitter and be like, look, I appreciate this. This guy is great. He's super talented. But seriously, there's something wrong with you guys continuing to send me this performance that is repeating one of my father's most sad days. And can you please stop, you know? And I get that. Yeah, and it's oh, the other one I was trying to think of. Oh, I'm sorry, I keep I keep doing that. I just, I, my brain is really on fire today, and it's it's not. But the one that that I was trying to think of was um, well, Ryan Reynolds. In order to get the Deadpool movie made, he he shot that test reel and then leaked it, leaked it, and then that resulted in the Deadpool movie getting made. And so I think that's probably what's what has uh, um, been the motivation behind like a Jamie Costa doing this test footage, quasi test footage for Robin Williams, um, right. But it also, that, that that can backfire on you because, uh, again, passing over the perfect actor for a given role, 
Um, I think a lot of us probably saw the sort of fake leaked self-produced test footage of Nathan Fillion as Nathan Drake from the Uncharted series, and that didn't wind up working. That didn't wind up working, because apparently the, uh, the Uncharted movie has been in the can for a while with Tom Holland, a.k.a. Spider-Man from the Marvel films, in the lead role. And they haven't, um, I don't know what's, what's happening with that. It was one of those things that kind of had several false starts, and then COVID happened, and it's sort of like been delayed several times. I'm not really sure what's even going on with that. I think it's but, still in post-production. Yeah, a lot of people got super pissed off that after Nathan Fillion, I mean, the character of Nathan Drake from Uncharted was kind of based on Nathan Fillion in a way. Um, it's obvious you can sort of like see it in the voice that Nolan North doing the vocal performance and, and the, the sort of like the, the the appearance of the character is very much like Nathan Fillion. So he did a, a test reel as the character and it was brilliant and perfect and I would have loved to have seen the movie, but it didn't wind up getting made and they cast Tom Holland instead. So that kind of thing can go either way, but I really, really hope that this Jamie Costa guy gets this movie. Now, okay, done with that tangent, back onto the, uh, the, the, the horror icons thing. Um, I, when it Passing comes to these guys... No, I was going to say, you'll finish your thought, man. I got, I got something we can talk no, about. No, no, you go ahead. You go ahead. I've been rambling oh, for I was 10 minutes say, here. This casting news, they just cast, uh, Hulu is recreating the uh, Hellraiser series. And we were just talking oh, about wow. Pinhead and Hellraiser series. Yeah. Hulu's creating uh, a new Hellraiser series uh, done by Spyglass Media and uh, directed by uh, David Bruckner, who's the same okay. guy who, I guess, directed uh, The Ritual. And uh, it's being produced by... Uh, Clive Barker, so he's back. All right. Uh, to produce it now, they've cast the new Pinhead, uh, uh, trans actress Jamie Clayton. Okay. And there's a lot of people up in arms. Oh my God, Pinhead was oh, a for guy. Fuck's and there's sake. Your it's like, you know what? Get over yourselves. I've seen, uh, I've seen uh, like fan photos of like creating her as Pinhead. I yeah. think it looks like it could be fantastic. Um, Certainly, I don't know enough about her body of work to to be able to judge one way or another, but I am I'm a huge fan of taking creative choices and taking decisions and and, and kind of running in a new direction and kind of seeing what sticks. I mean, we talk about that when we talk about cover music. We, there's yeah. two ways to go with cover music. There's either the faithful or the interpretive, and I think that uh, having an actor or an actress come in and do an interpretive take on uh, an old franchise to to kind of gussy it up and make it new. Uh, what's wrong with that? You know, yeah. Let's it be didn't super work honest. Necessarily for for Jackie O'Haley as as Freddy Krueger, but you wouldn't have known yeah. unless you tried. It, you know? Anything that creates more work for marginalized performers is just fine by me because we've had Absolutely. so many. Um, just in the last maybe couple of years, like when Laverne Cox was on Orange Is the New Black, or um, I don't remember the name of the other trans actress who actually appeared as a as a trans character in another uh, series a couple of years ago. But um, the fact that we can't I got really one remember. On Supergirl. I, I forget her name, but uh, uh, Mains, I want to say. Uh, yeah, it could have been. Playing, that could have uh, been it. Me but the fact that I'm struggling to remember Supergirl. means that we need more of that representation. I mean, when you've got somebody For like um, Jeffrey Tambor, who actually wound up getting canceled because he was super toxic on the set of Arrested Development, and we haven't really seen much from him lately, got cast as the lead in Transparent, um, even though he is in no way trans at all. I, I just, anytime that you. <laughs> Again, it goes towards that like punching up versus punching down thing. Like a lot of people are like, "Well, why do we have Nicole to have trans?" You know, by the way. yeah, we we, we we can't get trans performers cast as trans characters 
But if we can cast them in roles that maybe aren't necessarily thought of as being people who are in that community, I don't, you know, I don't have a problem with that at all. It, it goes back again to that sort of thing. Like a lot of people got really pissed off when Michael Clark Duncan got cast as uh, as Kingpin, or when we had Kate Mara and Michael B. Jordan playing siblings in the Fantastic Four movie that failed for reasons other than the casting. Um, I, I, you know, it's it becomes a problem. When you have somebody like Tilda Swinton, who is cast as a traditionally Asian character, like the Ancient One, in the Marvel Universe, that's kind of an issue. But colorblind casting doesn't really work the other... I mean, it's not... It's not. Pro- it works the other way. It's not problematic the other way when you have somebody right. like Idris Elba cast as Heimdall. You know, even though it's a traditionally Norse character, and uh, n- Norse characters are, are so tied into being Aryan white characters that uh, um, sort of like... Uh, Viking symbology, runes, and that kind of thing, you kind of have to look at it crooked sometimes because it's been co opted by neo Nazis. So then you got Idris Elba playing Heimdall. That works because it, it works to go the other way. To cast a traditionally white character uh, with, a, with an actor of color or, or maybe somebody who's an LGBTQ character playing a straight character, like um, Neil Patrick Harris did playing Barney on How I Met Your Mother, that works. But, you know, taking roles away from it's, people. It's tricky. It's real yeah. tricky. Yeah, it, it, it's again, like we, we talked about last week, like separating art from the artist. You kind of have to almost take that shit on a case-by-case basis and adjudicate things individually in order to really decide whether or not they work. But honestly, across the board, anything that gets marginalized actors, whether they're LGBTQ actors um, or whether they're actors of color or whether they're actors who maybe are a different ethnicity, like the um, uh, Joel and Tommy in the Last of Us series were not originally cast as, uh, as, as Latino characters, but they're being played by Latino actors in the series that's being produced by my friend Craig Mazin over at HBO, um, Diego Luna is uh, no Gabriel Luna. Sorry, Diego Luna is a, a Gabriel Luna who played um, uh, Ghost Rider in the uh, Agents of Shield series is playing Tommy, and we got Pedro Pascal, aka Mando himself, playing the lead role of Joel. And originally these weren't you know Latino characters in the game, but the fact that they cast a pair of Latino actors to play brothers in the game, and they both look the part and are fucking perfect, that, you know, good for them. I'm going to watch the shit out of it, not just because I played both of the Last of Us games and, and absolutely love them, top fives, both of them, amazing games, works of art if you haven't played them, you need to, but also because Latino actors are getting a shot and because a friend of mine is, is producing the series. So I will definitely watch the holy living shit out of that, but, you know, really... It, it does wind up being one of those things that you kind of have to, 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 to kick around and talk about and sort of adjust on a case-by-case basis. Yeah, and speaking of uh, Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon on that crap, uh, you were talking about Laverne Cox and Orange is the New Black. Yeah. Laverne Cox was herself cast as uh, a fill-in, not fill-in, that's the wrong word. Laverne Cox was cast as a uh, replacement for the modernized version of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Uh, oh, great. And further. Yeah. And... Uh, in the Tim Curry role, and from what I understood, she did great. I haven't yeah. watched the remake. Uh, I, I, I mean, I watched the original a few times. It's never been my big, yeah, me uh, Huge thing, but it's fine. Uh, it's just I've not for me. It. We have a new guest joining us here. Hang on, we'll let her join so she can hear us. We got Maria. Maria, how you doing? I don't know if you can hear us or not, but uh, welcome to the podcast. Uh, Maria, of course, used to be on the first season. We had her on quite a bit. Uh, with my panel of, of of friendly hosts back in the day. Uh, it's good to see you. Now, we are talking about horror movie icons, and so uh, let's kind of run down a list of yeah, who we are horror movie icons. I mean, we, we're, we're dancing all around the point, as we tend to do. But yeah. so we got Freddy Krueger, 
You got Michael Myers. Uh, you got uh, Jason Voorhees. Uh, Chucky. Leatherface. P- Leatherface. Pinhead. The Cen- Michael Myers. I would say Pinhead slash the Cenobites. Yeah. Because uh, there's more than just Pinhead. He gets all the press, uh, Le- but he does have a crew. Does Leprechaun count, or is that more of a, sh- a eh, schlock thing? I don't know. I would say so. I mean, yeah. It's definitely uh, a central Man. antagonist, Candyman, sure, yeah. Candyman just came back with a new flick that's supposed to be pretty badass. Tony Todd uh, was fantastic back in the day. I love Tony Todd as an actor in general. Because he shows up as a Star Trek actor, too, which I really dig. He showed up as not only Kern, uh, Worf's brother, but he showed up as Elder Jake Sisko in one of the episodes where Jake was in the future. So that was kind of fun. But uh, let's see, what other horror movie icons? We talked about Leatherface. We got uh, uh, the Firefly family, if you want to count them as horror movie icons. Uh, Captain Spaulding. Sure. Um, who else? What else we got? You got anything else? Or? You know, I, I, I was a horror movie fan quite a bit back in like junior high and high school. I've sort of fallen away from it a little bit. But um, yeah, I think we sort of covered the big ones, the ones anybody would really think of as, as being iconic antagonists in these horror films. Oh, Jigsaw. I would, I oh, put Jigsaw. Jigsaw that list of course. Well. Yeah, uh, I would say because, so. Uh, maybe Pennywise, but Pennywise is more of a kind of a pocket thing, his own thing. Um, oh, how do we forget uh, Ghostface from the Scream movies? Sure, okay, yeah. Uh, I, I'm, I'm looking down picture lists right now trying to see uh, uh, Chucky. We talked about Hannibal Lecter, I would say, is more of a suspense thing. I wouldn't say he's yeah. necessarily a horror thing. Uh, same with Norman Bates. Then you get Ash Williams, kind of, not really. Well, he's more of an anti-hero than he is an actual horror movie killer antagonist. He's the main character. Right. Which I suppose you could also Um, argue that if, you know, Jason Voorhees and Freddy Krueger and Michael Myers are also the main characters in their movies, but they're not the, uh, they're not the, the protagonist. They're not the driving force. They're not who you're rooting for. Most of the time, anyway. And you got your peripherals. You got, like, The Grudge, The Ring. You got the Alien movies, the Predator movies. Our friend, uh... Matt jumped into a chat and to tell us that his favorite uh, was a cross between the Alien series and Cube, which I haven't seen Cube in forever. No, me either. Uh, you got one, you though. got your real peripheral characters who maybe in one or two things like uh, uh, Christine or Jack Torrance from The Shining, or you know you got real uh, one-off characters, and then you got like your 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 universal horror characters like. Uh, uh, the zombies and 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 Frankenstein creature from the Dracula. Black Lagoon, Dracula, sure, the Mummy, right? Or Old like Audrey style. too, you know, if you're going to get into that. Um, but I mean, really, at that point, we've talked about the massive ones, the ones that have multi uh, multi film arcs and multi, like multi franchise arcs and things like that. So, uh, what what well, are the Ang- Angus Scrim? Does a- Angus Scrim count from the uh, Phantasm series? He may. I haven't seen the Phantasm series. Is that who, who played him? Oh, I, I don't know. remember. The, is Angus Scrim the name of the actor or the character? It's been probably early '80s since I've seen that. So, you know, when in oh, doubt, oh, off yeah. to IMDb you go. Um, <laughs> I, I want to. I, rem- I think I remember thinking back in the day, which again was a Tuesday, that um, Angus Scrim was the name <laughs> of the actor, and I thought, how fantastic is that? That's like if you have a certain name, you kind of have to do a certain thing for a living. Angus Scrim was never going to be able to be anything but a horror movie, like you know, a guy named. Um, uh, Blake Shelton had to be a country singer, you know. A guy named Angus Scrim has to be a. Or a, a, a there's certain names that are just perfect for the, uh, for for what it is you're doing. And I'm gonna look this up right now because I can't remember if Angus Scrim. Right. Yeah, Angus so, Scrim was we, the actor. 
Okay. What was his the, the character was just called the, the Tall Man. man? The, tall the Tall Man. man. Yeah. yeah. It was in Phantasm like and its sequels. But the name of the actor was Angus Scrim. What a great name. I wish that was my That's name. That's a pretty badass name. Right. Yeah. Well, and then I was thinking a lot along the lines of uh, one of the things I used to love watching horror related when I was a kid. And, and you can call this schlock horror if you want. And most, most horror from the 80s and 90s was kind of schlocky. It was. Uh, if you think about it. And uh, The Crypt Keeper was always oh, yeah. just <laughs> super fun to me. Just over the top, hammy, deliciously yeah. just deviant. Elvira, the same yep. thing with Elvira, Mistress of the Dark. Old Cassandra Peterson, love her. Um, but as far as horror movie icons, now, what do you think it is that makes a horror movie icon? Because we have things like Jason Voorhees, who's been around since, I want to say the early eighties, early to mid eighties is when the, uh, uh, Friday the 13th movie started. Yeah. And, uh, what is it that keeps him coming back? What is it that gives him the staying power that he's got? I think I yeah. remember reading somewhere, and I, there's a, it's not an original theory. I didn't come up with this, but I sort of have subscribed to it in, in any case. Um, and it kind of ties into the, the, the zombie idea too. I think we sort of, like Night of the Living Dead, like Roger Corman back in the the sixties. My Roger was it Roger Corman? I think it was Roger Corman. Um, uh, Night of the Living Dead. No, that was yeah. uh, George Romero. Absolutely, George Romero. Well, the the zombie thing and also the uh, the Jason Voorhees thing. I think I, I I read this article that said we we sort of fear hordes of zombies and also like the, the, the unstoppable killer that just has the machete or the chainsaw and keeps on slowly marching towards us no matter what roadblocks we throw up or how many times we burn them to death or drown them or kill them. That kind of is an analog, I guess, for life. Because when you get to be an Jesus adult, you Christ. sort of realize, yeah, you sort of realize no matter what I do, there's always more shit to do. Whether it's I work all week at work, I do, and the, the tasks keep on coming down the pike. Uh, there's always more Jeez. work to do at work. And then I have the weekend, and I can't really relax on the weekend because I have to grocery shop, I have to take care of laundry, I have to do all that. There's always more to do. Life keeps on coming at you and it never stops. You never really are able to take a break or a breath with life. And so the analog of life is a horde of zombies. It's... Oh shit, I got this baseball bat, I got this shotgun, I got this machete, I got this chainsaw, and the zombies, no matter what I do, they just keep on fucking coming. So I might be right. able to you know, decapitate this one, hit that one with a chest shot, knock it down, but no matter how many zombies I kill, there's always more fucking zombies. So it's kind of like <laughs> life. Shit comes at you all the time. There's always Everybody has a to-do list that will like my pop culture cue, it'll never be finished. Um, but life is uh, jobs and laundry and, and cleaning the house and doing the dishes. And no matter what you, you, every time you turn around, there's more shit to do and it never stops. You know, I've, youth is wasted on the young because when you're a kid, you're riding your bike, you're playing video games, you're farting around with your friends, you're doing whatever. And then you're like, I can't All wait to grow up. All the time in the world. Right. Yeah. But then as soon as you grow up, you have an unending stream of responsibilities that never ceases. And that is an analog for zombies. So I never thought of it that way. And Jesus, that is prescient. I, I just... I didn't yeah. either until I read this article, and I thought that's that's, that's really that's totally okay. Depressing. I get it now. And then I think the it's other a, reason it's why depressing as hell it really is, but it's totally accurate. And then I think the, the, the other reason why we have characters that actually have a personality because you know your Michael Myers is and your Jason Voorhees they're faceless killers. They have no personality. It's just a guy in a jumpsuit and a mask, and he's got a weapon and he's coming at you all the time. Then what you do? So then you got other characters like. Um, Freddy, Freddy Krueger, who's, who's wisecracking with the one-liners, and uh, he gets you while you sleep. Um, 
And then you've got people like Pinhead or people like Chucky. And I think we relate to those and we want to see them go down because everybody knows an asshole. Whether it's a professor or a boss or uh, an ex-spouse or something that they're just, oh God, I just want this person to leave me the fuck alone and they won't. They always got something to say and I have to deal with them. Whether it's, oh, I got to hand off my my kid because I share custody with an ex-spouse and they've always got some wisecrack. Or my boss can't just say, hey, can you do this? He's always got a fucking bust on me to let me know that I'm underneath him or whatever it is. So I think whether you've got a faceless horde or a faceless killer that never stops coming at you, they're just a, de- a determinator and they're always coming at you, or whether you've got some wisecracking antagonist asshole who makes your life miserable, we can all relate to having a shitty life full of responsibilities and awful people in our lives we have to deal with that we'd rather not. So I think kind of on a basic level, that's where these characters come into play and why they bother us and, and, and or they're like sand in a bathing suit and why we like to see them get their asses handed to them. Because at the end of every movie, you know, somebody lives, um, whether it's the antagonist or whether it's the person whose name is above the title, whatever it is, evil is ostensibly punished at the end of every one of these movies. You know, you, you manage to put the killer down. Sometimes there's a sequel tag where it's like, oh, I'm not really dead, I'm coming back in the sequel, whatever. But for, at least for a period of time... Oh, Jesus Christ. Fine. The zombie horde has been felled. The, the, the Jason Voorhees is back at the bottom of the lake at, at the camp. Whatever it is, we've at least temporarily managed to beat back the antagonist that's making our lives miserable. But of course, they always do come back, which is like life. The sequel rolls around and here they are again. But for at least a minute, we look at these things and we relate to them because at least by the time the credits roll... Whoever it is that's making us miserable has gotten what's coming to them. They'll probably be back. But for now, evil is punished and we can breathe again. And I think one of the ones that crosses genres, I mean, we talked about earlier, we talked about how there's two different uh, uh, specific uh, brands of horror movie that are really popular right now. There's yeah. the creature horror movies and then there's the psychological horror movies. And I think the one crossover that we really have into that genre is uh, your, your, your jigsaw killer. Yeah, uh, from the Saw movies, because here we have this central figure, but he's doing these moralistic head games to try and get people into this. Do you like to play a game and and all of this shit and and there's I mean for his reasons he's got reasons whether or not they're good reasons or not is entirely up for interpretation. But he's sure. got his his quote unquote reasons for putting people through these uh, torturous games, and so. Uh, that kind of runs alongside of your psychological horror, your thriller. You're trying to get to the bottom of who this is and why this is in time. Um, but you also have that central figure, which is Jigsaw. And yeah, and, and so I think he's kind of the one that t- kind of runs right along parallel both sides. But uh, if you're in the if, uh, conversation here, if you're in the, the chat, uh, throw in the chat uh, who you feel your favorite movie horror icon is. And uh, let us know in that way. Uh, that way, if we don't have you on uh, uh, vocally, we can always have your opinion known. So uh, uh, anyone who's in the chat, let us know who you feel. Uh, if not your favorite horror movie icon, definitely uh, if you have a favorite horror movie or a horror franchise or a particular type of thing you're into in that regard, let us know. Um, and if not... Tell us what your favorite pie is. Who knows? We, we always in, are trying to solicit pie recipes. Maybe this is a good way to get it. If there's any through line uh, of narrative to this podcast that is not geek <laughs> culture, it's definitely the love of pie. I mean, and it's coming up on pie season because every, after spoopy season becomes pie season. You know, uh, the pumpkins are starting to ripen up uh, right around Halloween is when we start to make pumpkin pies. Mm-hmm. And that carries through usually through Thanksgiving and Christmas. Um, so, yeah. 
Ooh, pie, yum. <laughs> Maria says pie, yum. Of course, Maria pie, yum. gets it. That's, Maria is on. That's the cool the pie. thing about. That's the cool thing about spoopy season. It's pie season. It's uh, uh, feast with your family season. It's soup season, which I am a huge fan of soup. And maybe that comes from like dozens of years of horrible dental problems, but uh, uh, soup season's always been fantastic for me. I do home, love me so. some soup, and but the, the the problem that I have with soup is all of my favorite like winter soups uh, tend to be uh, pretty much off the menu in terms of like my uh, my dietary weight loss journey. I'm down about sixty pounds since uh, maybe late spring, which is uh, you know pretty great. Well, you know, I, I appreciate that a lot. It's it's coming off. But the problem is that, like, when I talk about soup, I think about, oh, uh, chicken dumpling soup with nice big fat chunks of spetzel in it. That's one of my favorites. Uh, mm. It's my mom's recipe, and she makes a fantastic one. Or whether it's um, uh, my favorite winter root vegetable soup is a, um, um, it's a potato leek soup with bacon, and it's just, and milk, and it's carbs on carbs on carbs. Uh, with, uh, oh, fantastic. And you saute the leeks and the bacon grease once you get done cooking that. Fucking fantastic, but you know all these winter soups. You're you're really drinking your calories in a, in a way, and so I kind of have oh, to absolutely. ration myself a little bit because I have one bowl of, of chicken dumpling soup, and I'm over my carb count for the day, thanks to the nice big fat egg and flour dumplings that are in there. But um, yeah, it is soup oh, season. Man. I love soup season, and that and the fact that you know where I am, it's very cold, and I kind of have to, I have to resist the urge like I have in years past, to do that like grizzly bear hibernation thing where I pack on weight for the winter because, A, I'm not sleeping, and, B, uh, the last couple of years I've forgotten to take it back off in the spring, and then I start over again in the winter, and I just <laughs> keep on adding more on top of it, which is why I've had all this weight I have to lose over the last couple of months. But, um, yeah, soup season is I think a I need to develop a cocaine habit. That way at least I'll lose some weight. I don't know. Or maybe a tapeworm. i got to get me one of those. I don't know. Wait. Used to be years ago, oh, yeah. uh, you would see like in the... Oh, in the in the super toxic misogyny era, not that we're not still in it, but at least we're acknowledging it these days. Um, right. They used to be, uh, uh, they used to sell tapeworms in, in pills as a dietary supplement. And yeah, the weight would definitely come off, but yeah, then you'd have to go to the doctor and get dewormed, which I guess maybe they were ahead of that ivermectin curve before COVID hit, but whatever. <laughs> maybe, maybe. But again, uh, let us know who you guys think are your favorite horror movie icons. Now, I gravitate more towards the more realistic horror. Uh, so for me, one of my absolute favorites in recent memory is going to be your House of a Thousand Corpses, your Devil's Rejects. And as I said, I'm still yet to see um, the third, Three from Hell. But, but your Rob Zombie stuff. Is, 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 yeah, Rob Zombie, but it also happens to deal with the fact it's it's this just psychologically deranged family that goes on murder sprees and you know does horrible, offensive, disgusting things to these bodies in their own methodology there's no uh real psychological or there i mean not psychological excuse me there's no uh psychospiritual monster there's no uh phantasms or monsters or people from beyond the grave it's just it's just a totally plausible hey we have a murderous family who's taking people out which you can absolutely have yeah and we have had in this country and, and for more or less, you could get that same thing with Saw, which is, I think, why I gravitated towards the early Saw movies, is because the Saw movies is just 100% torture porn. I mean, that's yeah. what it is. Uh, but it's done with such a very uh, strong eye towards that psychological thrill, that that uh, that puzzle thing, and, and, and I kind of gravitate towards that. Uh, so maybe my movie monsters aren't, aren't necessarily the kind that you know, walk from beyond the grave or haunt you in your dreams or or this, that, or the other thing. What about you, Jim? 
One of the last horror movies that I can remember watching, I don't watch too many now. I did see A Quiet Place because I really liked John Krasinski and Emily Blunt oh, and I, I thought it was an that. interesting concept. That was pretty great. But one of the last horror movies that I saw, I guess quote-unquote horror movies, was kind of either at the beginning or sort of in, in, in media's res of the established gore porn genre. And I just, you know, I never, oh gosh, you know, I never really got too much into that. It was just so, you watch it and you go, God, this is just, it's just gore for the sake of gore. But... Speaking of like hostel? plausible ideas, Hostel. Yes, you're reading my mind, man. No, it was Eli Roth's it. Hostel. Yeah. <laughs> um, where it's sort of like the, the, the idea of Taken with uh, um, Liam Neeson, where his daughter goes on vacation and she winds up getting taken by sex traffickers. In this instance, it was people that go on vacation and they get sort of recruited by this uh, sort of tall, good-looking Aryan dude who wants to bring, oh, we've got this great hostel. It's a couple of towns over. you got to come over and say it's a hostel. It's wonderful for travelers. And then he takes them there, and then it winds up being they get kidnapped. And rich tourists from around the world uh, pay to basically torture people to death. Um, and it's horrifying, and it's awful, and there are some moments in there where you just go, oh, God, who would think of this, much less put it on screen? Um, some truly just haunting, disturbing, unsettling shit going on in that movie. And that was kind of like the movie that cured me of my of my uh, horror curiosity. I was like, okay, <laughs> if that's where horror movies are going now, I'm going to fucking tap out, because that shit was just, it still gets under my skin a little bit when I think about the shit that went on in that movie. Um, but Eli Roth, I mean, if, if that's the kind of thing you're into, you'll be into that kind of thing. And he did a very good job with it if it's your deal. Um, so definitely check that out. But then it's sort of like there were other movies that came out after that, that, uh, like Gaspar knows irreversible. That wasn't necessarily a horror movie. Uh, Maria's saying squid game reminded me of saw, but also, I don't know if I like horror as much as I like suspense. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah, I get that too. Yeah, suspense is, uh, that, that kind of ties into what we were talking about before, about the sort of like the cold hand that moves over yours in the dark. Um, that's more like the M. Night Shyamalan sort of like uh, genre of, of horror, where it's it just kind of keeps you on the edge of your seat, not knowing what the fuck is going to happen next, which is the definition of suspense, and he does a really great job with that. But yeah, so I, 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 I heard about things like Irreversible, the Gaspar Noah film, in which truly horrifying things happen, and uh, it's even worse than Hostel. And then you go to something like that that truly tries to up the the ante. And these are movies again that I haven't seen, but that I've heard about and read about what happens in them, and that's why I won't see them. Things like Human Centipede or Audition Ooh, by yeah. Takashi Miike, or um, what's the other one? Uh, a Serbian film, which is constantly on the list of like number one of like this is the most horrifying, disturbing, unsettling, nightmare-inducing haunting awful thing that's ever been committed to celluloid and unless you are a masochist like an absolute clinically diagnosed off your meds masochist you are not going to want to watch this movie and so i haven't um so i think things coming back around to being like michael myers and chucky and some of the horror (laughs) movies that are coming out now that are your sort of major market um uh wide release horror movies getting back to that central protagonist killer I think it's not a softening necessarily because there's still horror and murder happening, but it's it's kind of like they're moving away from like the shock gore and uh, what was the other one? The Descent where the, the, with the cave crawlers who got torn apart by the monsters. Like, I didn't see any of these. That's the thing because after I watched Hostel, I just really kind of swore off horror movies for a while you until A Quiet Place rolled back around again. Yeah, I really, I, I thought, well, if this, is where, if this is where things are going, I, I don't want any part of it. Uh, it's just too over the top for me. Um Maria so says, watching. don't watch Human Centipede. 10 out of 10, wouldn't recommend. Yeah, Regrets. I haven't seen it. No, I get I it. I haven't seen it. I get it. it. <laughs> and I won't see it, but I know heard, what happens in it. I've heard enough about it. I've heard enough about it. That's why I won't see it. Me, so. No, I, but, duly uh, noted, Maria, and good advice, and it's, it's, it's advice that I have followed and will continue to follow, so I appreciate that. 
I think a lot of what this boils down to is, is you have these super horrific movies like Hostel and things like that, that kind of are there for jump scare, there for shock and there for, for yeah. definitely for a horror angle, but it's not something that you can, or that you should, I don't know, maybe that I can, maybe other people do, but that you can watch more than once and really yeah. maintain the same level of terror. Because once you've seen it, you've seen it, you know what's going to happen. Uh, it loses something. It's like watching Sixth Sense. You can watch The Sixth Sense uh, once, get thoroughly entertained by that, look at the twist and go, holy shit, I didn't see that coming, or maybe you did, or maybe you didn't, whatever, right. for whatever reason. But you can go, that's amazing, but you cannot go back and watch it again with fresh eyes. You cannot go back and watch it again and have the same visceral reaction to it because you know what's going to happen. And things like, and I think that maybe that's where we have... And up in the hands of these uh, psycho killer movies like your Jasons and your Freddies and your your Michael Myers and things like that is because, yeah, you can go back and watch the same movies again for the performance angle of it because it's it's horrible, but it's not uh, like gore porn, like you said. But you can also have a continuation of it. You have one, two, three, four, five, ten yeah. movies in whatever franchise. And the unstoppable you can killer. continue to... Right. You get to see the ongoing exploits of this fascinating, fantastical beast that is killing campers at Camp Crystal Lake or haunts you in your dreams and waits for you to become a dream warrior, whatever the hell. So, I mean, you get to continue these adventures in a, in a, in a place that's not so psychologically damaging. Now, I know they made a human centipede, too. Again, I have yes. not watched the first one. And, like and the three, said, from what I understand. Oh, good Lord. Uh, they made several hostile movies. Uh, they've done uh, however many paranormal activities movies. They even did a retread on the Blair Witch Project, which I would have figured uh, wouldn't have had much ground to stand on once the initial uh, uh, novelty of the original wore off. Yeah, the original Blair Witch, the, the reason that worked is the same reason that the original War of the Worlds worked with Orson Welles on the radio back in the 40s is because it was, you know, put up as people being... People thought it was real. This, this is a documentary. This is a news report. This is for real. And people Found were shitting themselves. shit. Yeah. yeah, it's, yeah. That's great. Um, you know, in those kind of movies, you're right, they don't really bear rewatching. I might have to split hairs with you a little bit on the on the rewatch on Sixth Sense because I think maybe that one might bear rewatching at least once more so that you kind of go back and look for the holes. Once you know the twist, you go back and you go, oh, so were, did I'll they ever fuck this up? Was was Did they ever actually have... Conceit. Bruce yeah. Willis talked to Tony Collette in the scene. You, you sort of look for, now that you know what's up, then you go, oh, that was very clever the way they did that. And I might not That's have seen true. it coming, that, but I can see what they're doing now. another... Another taste of how well they'd perform their role as well. Yeah, and how well I'll it was written that. and how well I'll, it was I'll conceived. Give you that. That's I'll the give only you that. the way that that bears rewatching. But like, yeah, and you know, I don't know. Like going back to the the, the the gore porn thing. I think you're right. You watch certain things for the twist. You watch certain things for the jump scares, and then you can't really go back and watch them again. But Hostel kind of cured me of movies horror movies for a while because there's a difference I think between. Recoiling from the screen in shock, recoiling from the screen in surprise, because those are closely related to delight. You know, oh my gosh, the you know the jump scare, ah! but recoiling from the screen in disgust, just grimacing and wrinkling <laughs> up your face. Oh my god! Like, That's like the a, old. Uh, what was that? What was that old series back on VHS days? I think it was called Faces of Death. Yes. Oh where, shit. Where the big selling point of Faces of Death was this was actually watching people die. 
it was a snuff film basically, okay. but it wasn't. Yeah. It was recreations. But they, I think the filmmakers got a, that one, and there was another one, Cannibal Harvest. I think was another. I don't. I'm probably getting the title wrong on that one. But these are movies that actually were investigated because they were such realistic depictions of death that people thought these were legitimate snuff films, and they went back and looked at them and had to take a look at them again. Um, but yeah, shit like in Hostel, there was a, a scene. I don't remember the character. Uh, I just remember the imagery where this kid was strapped to a chair and some guy was kind of going to town with power tools and straight razors and shit. And at one point, this kid got up to try and escape. He was able to wriggle out of his bonds and he got up and tried to walk away and there was a close-up of his feet. And as he tried to walk, uh, the back of his heel, his, his Achilles, opened up like a red mouth and he fell down because he didn't have the... And it was, oh my God, that's horrifying. Or like a girl with her eyeball hanging out that jumps in front of a train because she finds out what she looks like when she gets liberated from the camp. All this horrible, horrible shit. And it was bad enough that I just stopped watching for a while but no you know, i get I'm, it i'm probably gonna go back and watch Hall- uh, halloween kills now because that was a series that i remember years ago was was scary for the right reasons you know um even though i prefer uh the movie killer to have a personality like whether it's pinhead sort of with his like bdsm vibe or whether it's freddie with the the wisecracks <laughs> or whatever or chucky with uh his sort of little doll thing going on i, I like a, a character that actually has a personality as opposed to the faceless determinator like you've got jason Voorhees or leatherhead but I think I will still go back and I'm going to check out Halloween Kills because I appreciate what they've been doing with the franchise. Right. Uh, and like I said, I still got to watch Three from Hell because I really like what Rob Zombie does. And that's really given me a strong desire to watch his Halloween movies at the very least and, and kind of check those out. Now, like I said, at the beginning of this whole thing, I'm not a huge uh, horror movie fan. I've seen enough to get my feet wet. Uh, back in the day was mostly when I watched it. I used to watch the Chucky movies. I used to watch the Freddy movies, yeah. things like that. But uh, as far as keeping up to date, it's it's hit and miss. It's it's few and far between. Yep. Uh, because I have such uh, select time that I can dedicate towards my fandom, so I kind yep, of yep. Uh, pick and choose where I throw that attention. And and horror has never really been super high up on the list, but I definitely wanted to discuss it because uh, with spooky season here and upon us, uh, it just seems to be the the uh, the impetus for the reason. Or the impetus for the season here, and 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 talking about horrible things and talking about these uh, mass murdering psychopaths just seems to fit the bill. So um, definitely, if you if you're part of the chat, we want to hear from you. Send us a message on Facebook once we can actually respond to our messages on Facebook. Hey yo, thanks a lot, Zuckerberg. Yeah, piece but, of uh, shit. You can hit us up on Facebook at uh, facebook.com/forward slash fuel your fandom. Uh, you can send us emails. Let us know who you feel is uh, your favorite horror genre, horror film, horror icon. Uh, send us an email at feelyourfandom at gmail.com. And you can always hit us up at the backup email address, which is fyftalentbooking at gmail.com. That's where you want to send your show ideas, your guest suggestions, especially if they are you. And as we have already established being the narrative through line of this entire podcast, your pie recipes. You can also dig us up on Instagram at fuelyourfandom. You can find us on Twitter at Fuel underscore your, and uh, we are getting ready to formally kick off the Fuel the Future uh, charity, which uh, is going to help us put comic books into the hands of kids who might not be able to afford them, and if you want to drop a couple of bucks on us for that, you can hit us up there on PayPal, on Cash App, and on Venmo. We made it real easy. That's just at Fuel Your Fandom, and every dollar you send us will be earmarked towards... uh, 
going towards local comic book shops to go into a fund to help kids in the area where Saint and I both live and hopefully coming up some other comic book shops in other areas, maybe somewhere you live, to, uh, to put comics into the hands of kids who might not otherwise be able to afford them and to help create the next generation of fans. Absolutely, because that's kind of our goal. We want to not only foster our own fandoms and talk about our own fandoms and talk about the things that make us nerdy and happy and put that twinkle and sparkle in our eyes, but we want to make sure we pass that on to the next generation. Straight up. Because if there's any kind of joy that I get out of being a fan of things and being a, a huge nerd is seeing my kids adapt to it and seeing my kids just wholeheartedly embrace it. And so if I could see that on my level, I would love to see it on a level of uh, everybody's kids getting out there and being able to be a fan of uh, something that makes them happy, that gives them that feeling, that gives them that ability to uh, release those endorphins, to have fun, to be, you know, a huge nerd. Damn That's straight. my goal. That's what I want. So definitely hit us up. Fuel the Future is coming very, very soon. Uh, I got some ideas in the works for that. Uh, we got a couple of more good conversations coming up before the end of the year. Uh, in fact, we have one coming up. Jim, I haven't even told you about this one, but I figure this might be fun. Ooh, we're making some news if today. You guys, if you guys are listening, I want you guys to weigh in on this as well. Let me know what you think. There's a whole lot of actors and actresses out there who are uh, perfect for the roles that they were assigned to that you can't imagine anyone else doing, but who weren't maybe the first choice for those roles. And uh, so who have you heard of being almost cast or cast and then a recast in a role where it would have changed the entire nature of that performance. And for instance, I'll give you one here. Uh, Neo from The Matrix, played admirably by everybody's fan, Keanu Reeves. Career-defining uh, role. Career-defining role for Keanu Reeves. Uh, was almost played by Will Smith. Very, very closely hmm. Played by Will Smith. And of course, the famously, of, the Back to the Future series, uh, uh, yeah. the Marty McFly role that was played by Michael J. Fox was another career-defining role. Uh, they actually shot a good chunk of the movie with Eric Stoltz in that role yep. and then uh, wound up removing him and replacing him with uh, Alex P. Keaton. Right, absolutely. And so we definitely want to uh, have a conversation about that. Who was great in a role? Uh, who was almost cast in that role? And what would that have looked like going forward from there? So... Uh, if you've got an opinion about that, weigh in with us, let us know, hit us up on Facebook, hit us up on Gmail. But we want to thank you for coming aboard this uh, uh, podcast as we record live from Facebook jail. Bum-bum. Um, Bum-bum. We, we want to thank you uh, for coming aboard and uh, listening. And uh, from all of us here, we want to thank you. I keep saying thank you. Jesus Christ. Uh, remember well, we, we what got we always try to say. We do. We got, I'm overflowing with gratitude. Uh, but uh, remember what I always say everything is fandom and fandom is everything take care guys That got flagged as hate speech.